Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, back with you still for the early part of the month of May. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who is so glad to be back with you once again here on this fine program. We are glad that you can join us, glad that we are still here to be joining you, and glad that we can all be joined together in audio matrimony. Absolutely, and uh, as always, I'm the second voice on this program. This week, I'm Dennis, the man who fully remembers the first and second waves of Ska, and would still prefer a third wave of that over COVID. <laughs> now, hey, hey now, let, I know we've been in this pandemic for, for over a year, but uh, now's not the time to start going crazy and talking crazy talk. Well, you know, when is? When is the right time? <laughs> You know, we're closer to the end than the beginning. We've got to keep our wits about us, and uh, we'll we'll cross that last 60% of the race and eventually cross the finish line, and we'll get there. We'll get there. There's no need to turn to ska in these times. But where's the lie? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, honestly, anything could be better than a third wave of this pandemic that seems to never end. Now, granted, if you were one of our American friends listening, this might be... Totally, like, you might be wondering, what the hell are you talking about? Like, we've we've got most of the population vaccinated now. Like, we're fine. Well, no, no. Remember, we are not where you are. We're in Canada. <laughs> we, <laughs> we're going into our third wave. Hooray! They said it couldn't be done. They said it wouldn't be done. But by God, we're getting it done. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> This is one of those cases of just because you can doesn't mean you should. However, <laughs> we here we are. What a time to still be alive. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, I, I believe I'll now now get into the novelty apparel business and make up shirts that say, oh, I lived long enough to see the third wave, wave, of, wave of COVID and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. <laughs> it's like... I survived the third wave of COVID. Now I have to survive the third wave of Scott too. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> yeah, that does not seem like a just reward. I, I have to say. No, I mean, I mean, Scott's been laying dormant for a long time. Yeah, and I, there's a reason for that. I mean, there's only so many mighty mighty Boston songs that sound exactly like each other. That you know. <laughs> Anyways, that's all I'll say about this. <laughs> Yeah, yes. we, we are not people who are going to uh, go into exhausting detail, pointing out the differences and subtle nuances between Mighty Mighty Boston's, uh, early No Doubt, um, or any of the other uh, new wave or not new wave, a ska bands you you may have heard of in the second was it it was it was second wave in the nineties, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, yeah. So we lived through it. Uh, thankfully, we weren't. Uh, old enough to to make life decisions based on what we heard in ska music it was just there you know filling the ether of our lives at that time didn't uh, it, didn't really impress strongly upon us yeah basically just you know literally providing background music to skateboarding video games <laughs> <laughs> this is true there was a lot of ska in some of those early tony hawk games <laughs> yes yes there was and it was never the songs that I was, you know, hoping. Like, you know, there were good, like, now I'm going to say an incredibly, like, you know, divisive thing here. Now, granted, I think we've established neither Mike the Legend nor myself are fans of Ska. 
I do know there are a lot of fans of ska. Um, and I'm sorry for saying this, but the ska songs in those Tony Hawk games were not the good songs. <laughs> I'm just going to say, like, I, I preferred to know when they had like, you know, either the skate punk or the, the hard rock or, you know, even Primus songs and stuff. It's like, no, those are the good songs there. Come on. <laughs> like, do we really have to put up with this, like, you know, fishbone, whatever stuff? Like, come on. <laughs> oh yeah. Fishbone too. I forgot about them. Yes. <laughs> yep. That, that's definitely a name from the, uh, nineties run of ska. Um, and then I think as uh, you can look and see, the second wave of ska died off pretty soon, and then no doubt at least uh, got hip and wise to things and just became a full-on pop band. Yeah. Though actually, my mistake, I think the ska wave that we were familiar with was the third wave. Um, if Wikipedia is to be believed, um, third wave and post-third wave is what we are familiar with. So, Sorry, replace what I said with fourth wave of ska over third wave of COVID then. There. Still in that battle, I'm not sure who wins. <laughs> There's no good outcomes. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully if you are listening to us uh, from somewhere in Canada experiencing a third wave, you are doing your best to uh, lay low, keep your head down. Uh, stay away from people. It is still hard at this time. Uh, we fully understand and hope that uh, this program can bring you a little bit of joy, light, and mirth and merriment uh, through whatever you are experiencing at this time, third wave or no third wave. And if you're someone who's listening to us from America land or perhaps even across the ocean in the UK, uh, in Great Britain, where life seems to be returning to normal, perhaps even in uh, Pacific regions such as Australia or New Zealand, where I believe life was the first to return to uh, 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 relative shades of normalcy. Um, screw all of you. Uh, <laughs> to hell with all of you. We don't need you. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I, I speak from a, a place of uh, just frustration and fatigue, but uh, we will eventually join you in those uh, times where we cross the finish line as well. It's, it's just taking a while to get there. Yeah, taking quite a while to get there. And, uh, yeah, once we're there, it'll be, you know, oh, so good. Unlike it, Ska. It, <laughs> <laughs> Just had to get one last dig in there, didn't you? Yeah, but, you know, like, why not? In, in case anyone was confused by any of the words that we have said in the in the first uh, five, ten minutes here, Ska's not our thing. Not uh, not big fans of uh, you know horn sections uh, dominating songs. If I if I want that, I'll listen to some classical. Yeah, I mean it, the horn section is not the problem. I think it's just like the the jaunty nature of like you know that upbeat kind of thing with like basically punk doesn't need a horn section. I mean, <laughs> give me some classic like Chicago or something. That's fine, but you know. Maybe also puts me in a, you know, puts me at risk of, you know, maybe some other like level of ribbing from certain people. But that's, that's, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable saying like, yeah, I'll listen to the first like four or five Chicago albums before I listen to ska. <laughs> but that's, uh, yeah. Anyways. Fair enough. So uh, if Ska's your thing and you're terribly offended, sorry that we lost you so early on into this week's program, but uh, stick around. It gets better, I, I swear. Yeah. Yes, it, it should, hopefully. Uh, and that and should be the end of us ragging on Ska. 
And one of the ways in which this program can get better is through the uh, use, the application of not one, but two ludicrous leadoffs. As always, those are the news items we have found, come across, uh, picked up that were just cast aside on the sidewalk uh, and sitting out there in the rain for a while, uncared for, unloved. But we saw some value and use to them, and now we are putting them to work uh, to bring you some more mirth and merriment. We have two of them, as I said, in our show this week. The first one is... A, a new use being applied for uh, uh, an old, an, an oldie but a goodie, if you will. Perhaps you're of a certain age where you can remember back uh, to the halcyon days of 2014 when uh, this particular game uh, was everywhere on mobile devices on, I believe, the uh, the App Store, uh, the on iOS platforms, and everyone seemed to be playing it and seemed to be getting terribly addicted to playing this game. That just seemed to take the world by storm. This game in, in particular was Flappy Bird. Yeah, which I think as far as I understand, it had its origins basically as a tech demo that the guy put together. It was a guy who was basically learning basic game development. And yeah, he he put this thing together very quickly using kind of recycled artwork from various other um, game properties. Released it for free. Tossed a couple ads on it. And then I think overnight was making like, I think from what I remember, he said something like $50,000 a day. And then he basically just with some analytics he saw, he, uh, he was seeing how much people were playing this game and, uh, kind of freaked him out a bit and he ended up taking it down. But that didn't stop it from basically entering the public consciousness as a style of game. And, you know, when people make a game in this style, it's always going to be compared to it. Uh, and the game, of course, is Flappy Bird. Indeed. And uh, so Flappy Bird has been offline for several years now. You cannot download it from any app store. Uh, the creator of it, uh, as you said, got got freaked out by it. And I can understand uh, a noble endeavor that you don't necessarily want your creation to take over the world and perhaps start destroying people's lives and society at large. So, all right, took it off and... Uh, Flappy Bird exists as a memory, a throwback to, I guess, the App Store and uh, games of several years ago. Now, Flappy Bird has, uh, as a game, has cropped up here and there in the years since of people uh, finding different ways to play it on uh, different forms, different devices, and whatnot. Kind of like Doom. You know, can it run Doom? Can it run Flappy Bird? But Yeah, exactly. We have uh, a news item this week. That actually uh, came down the pipeline about a month ago, but uh, it slipped through our fingers up until this point. A Flappy Bird being brought back, uh, not on any sort of ridiculous device. Uh, this particular engineer has been able to get Flappy Bird working on a uh, uh, Mac device, but got it working as a notification. Yeah, so um, he, you know, he he sent out a tweet. Uh, his name is, uh, uh, sorry, his, his name, but he's Neil Sardesai, Neil Sardesai. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. Uh, he's an iOS engineer. Uh, he sent out a tweet saying, lately I've been trying to find fun ways to push the limits of various Mac OS APIs. And when browsing through Apple's documentation of the framework for creating and customizing user notifications, he did notice that the latest version of macOS allows developers to add, and I quote, interactive controls to notifications. Apple suggests a few potential uses for developers, such as 
adding buttons or switches, but Sardesai took things one step further, deciding instead to try embedding a game into the notification. So there's a we have a link on our website, thearcadeshow.com, where you can actually see the tweet in question where he embeds um, a video of this proof of concept he made where, uh, you know, he a notification was triggered. Like if you're familiar with Mac OS, they call them growl notifications where they pop up in the top right corner of the screen when like, you know, you'll usually see they're normally used for things like, you know, the Apple news app where it like pops in whenever news stories, you know, come through or when you need to get, you know, an upgrade to your, you know, any key software or anything. Like if it pops in and says, Hey, here's a Mac security upgrade, click here to install it, that kind of thing, that type of thing. But he shows, he triggers one of these notifications and then clicking into it, it kind of the notification expands out and then the full Flappy Bird game is just right there. And like, you know, you, you interact with it by clicking on it. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, and yes, of course, in the thread on Twitter, you know, eventually someone did invariably ask, uh, can it run Doom? And he said, Doom in a push notification would be impressive. Worth a try. So <laughs> fingers crossed that that might be a thing eventually too. But uh, for now, Flappy Bird is a good start. Yeah, Flappy Bird seems uh, an interesting start. Perhaps a bit more complex, a bit more to it than trying something uh, simple and very basic like a Pong or whatnot or a Pac-Man. Uh, Though I think the same developer when I was looking into him, uh, he had previously or at least someone previously – might not have been him, but they had you, they basically with, um, in line with these, you know, various system APIs, put people trying to push limits to them. Someone did actually embed a pong into one of the, uh, the icon of, uh, of an open application. So like when you have an open application, it shows up in your dock there. And I guess they, they tried to push the limit of what you can do with that icon and someone did discover indeed you can actually run a full game of Pong in that little notification. Now granted, it's a pretty trash version to play the game. Like it's not, it's not the ideal circumstances. Like even on a, like a pretty big screen, like I've got like a 27 inch monitor here and I would say these icons are at most maybe three quarters of an inch big. So, you know, they're not really, like a three quarter inch square is not, <laughs> does not make for an ideal pong playing experience, but still impressive that someone tried. Yeah. You can respect the, uh, the technical feed of it rather than the, uh, the actual function of what's been delivered. Yeah, exactly. So Flappy Bird, uh, can exist again in a push notification on iOS platforms. Uh, thankfully, I believe that's a form factor that will not allow Flappy Bird the game to run amok and destroy people's lives and society as it kind of did back in 2014 when it was still new and taking everyone and everything by storm again. Yeah. Which I'm still a little bit kind of, you know, yeah, I understand the guy's motives for wanting to take it off the store, but you could have used all that money if you were really concerned about mental health and addictions and stuff. You could have basically set up a pipeline to start funneling a lot of money into like addictions foundations. Just saying. Could have. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's easy to say too in the, uh, in the after, uh, looking back at things with, uh, 2020 vision. Also, as someone who wasn't directly involved in any of the decision making either. 
Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> considering it was a one-man operation, I can also appreciate, you know, the feeling of like just all of a sudden feeling freak out and just like that moment of dread of like, oh no, am I ruining a bunch of people's lives? Ah, I get it. Like, so. Yeah, would you want that on your conscience? No. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, I do understand where he's coming from, but yeah, still. Anyways, it is very interesting though that Flappy Bird kind of in many ways is also in the, in the after years between 2014 and now basically become kind of like a fun little way because it is a simple game. It's basically become, uh, uh, an easy way to as or an easy idea as a proof of concept when kind of throwing together a new like uh example for a new game framework or like a new game library or things like that so like and it's sort of like like in in the world I normally come from which is the web development world like whenever new web frameworks and stuff come out and you know front end frameworks and things like that the the thing people often gravitate to is like to do notes so it's like they they call it like there's a whole website that has like a whole shwack of examples of how to make a, a simple to-do note app. And basically I think it's up to like 30 different frameworks or something at this point, but Flappy Bird is basically that to game development, what to-do notes are to web development, which is kind of cool. So that should be a, if anything else, like if there was, you know, if he still feels bad about, you know, the, the negative impact that Flappy Bird was having on people directly, he should feel proud that like, it's kind of had this interesting positive impact on, you know, the, the greater world of uh, game development, I think, in general, which is cool. Absolutely. And uh, at least uh, hope the creator of Flappy Bird uh, can take that solace uh, and has gone on to uh, develop other endeavors that uh, perhaps didn't cause quite the amount of mania, hysteria that uh, Flappy Bird did back then. But uh, let's move off Flappy Bird and the the craze that sprung up in the wake of Flappy Bird's release and everyone just taking to it in in wild numbers in wild amounts of time uh, to a, a different area of the gaming sphere. Perhaps you heard that this week the trial between Epic Games and Apple Corporation began in earnest in a California courtroom. The lawsuit uh, taking place because Epic Games started a whole bunch of shit last uh, last fall, last August and September as a means of protesting that Apple takes a 30% cut of every transaction on the uh, on the Apple App Store. And Epic Games doesn't think that's quite a fair uh, a partnership, quite a fair agreement. So they have uh, gone to extreme lengths to try and protest that and are now involved in a lawsuit with Apple, which I dare say was one of their end goals all along. Yeah. I'm sure they game played this out uh, on their own before they launched any of their salvos last, last August and figured it would get to this point and have also probably uh, game played out where it goes with this trial and what the various outcomes would be uh, one way or the other and what happens from there. So, but that, those outcomes are going to be uh, still a ways off because the trial just began this week in a California courtroom and because of uh, COVID restrictions and whatnot, it's uh, also, it's being conducted uh, as remotely as possible, but also still with, uh, uh, I mean, because of COVID restrictions, not allowing people in the courtroom other than the basic necessity of uh, who needs to be there, who absolutely needs to be there, lawyers for both sides, and perhaps who's being called to testify that day. In so doing, it has uh, allowed for, or did allow for, uh, a phone line 
to uh, allow four people to call in and hear the trial as it unfolds. The unfortunate thing is, when this trial began on Monday, it began with an open, publicly available, public, publicly accessible phone line. Yeah, which, in a, that in and of itself, you might not think is that big of an issue. Like, you know, this type of thing exists, bef- has existed in the past. I mean, you, you can call in and listen along, but like, you know, if you try to say anything, chances are you won't, your voice won't be heard because like you'll likely just be on mute because it's like a listen only type situation. You'd think. However, when they set it up, they didn't do it right. <laughs> they messed up and it became a two way thing. So what ended up happening was more than 200 participants got dialed into this public line and they were all a bunch of angry kids shouting free Fortnite or bring back Fortnite on mobile, please judge. So, you know, other kids played Travis Scott tunes. Other kids were chatting away. Other kids were advertising their YouTube channels. It just it quickly turned into total chaos. And it, this chaos apparently lasted for more than 20 minutes. And uh, as Tom Warren of TheVerge.com uh, puts it, he said, the result was basically like a chaotic Discord call. <laughs> so... The net result of all of this was uh, the trial, which was supposed to begin at 11.15 a.m. Uh, Eastern time, uh, ended up getting delayed until 11.30. <laughs> and, yeah, so which when they finally worked out these stupid technical kinks that they didn't troubleshoot beforehand. And, um, yeah, they, fi- they silenced the phone line in preparation for the court to actually properly hear Epic Games CEO Tim Sweeney. So... That's when the case or the, the court trial uh, started in earnest. Um, yeah. <laughs> very, very interesting how we have technology and stuff now that could have actually even prevented this and also maybe been like they could have literally just set up like some sort of like YouTube stream for people to watch. Yeah. Or even like a Twitch stream or something. If it's like, like why a phone line to dial into? Like the complexity of like getting that going, you know, does that even seem kind of a little bit kind of sketchy? Like, cause I feel like that would be even more complicated to set up in this day and age than it would be just basically setting up a couple of web cameras and yeah, like make sure you're, everything that people say into microphones are kind of put into, you know, one streaming computer basically. And then the streaming computer can just stream out to whatever streaming thing. Like that seems way easier to set up now. It it does to, to people such as uh, yourself and myself, but uh, the court clerks who may have been involved in the set, uh, set up in preparation for this trial uh, may have just gone with uh, their default knowledge, which was phone lines. They, they perhaps are not the, the most technically inclined to set up a, a Twitch stream, YouTube stream, or multiple cameras, or whatever the case might be. Fair enough, I suppose. But yeah, it's it's almost like if C-SPAN can figure it out. What? I mean, seriously, uh, you're you're not wrong for that. Uh, it's it's always entertaining to me whenever sort of these uh, these glitches, these oversights happen, and then the people. You know, perhaps on the internet, uh, people out there in the greater public can find ways just to absolutely go and ruin something. Yeah. Like, 
I mean, anytime, you know, a public phone line is kind of available there, like you need to expect crackpots are going to call in, like, especially if you don't have it locked down where it's just like, no, like, unless they're like behind a queue or like silenced and it's like, listen only or something. It's like, just look at the last hundred years of radio, basically, like (laughs) for as long as that, you know, radios have existed that allow you know, user call-ins, like, that's always a risk. <laughs> it, it is. It absolutely is. Uh, and if you put anything on the internet where people can have uh, free reign without uh, any sort of parameters or restrictions, uh, there will be people who find ways to ruin things and just do really stupid things. Yes. I, 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 I will throw my hand up. I'm guilty of doing such th- actions in the past. <laughs> I, I'm reminded of a moment in my own history of, say, roughly five years ago where uh, I was invited to uh, the wedding of a friend of a friend and uh, somehow that uh, friend of a friend for their reception uh, had a thing online where you could go and uh, select or suggest songs uh, to be played during the ceremony, but it was not a curated playlist to pull from. It was the entirety of whatever you could find in this song database on this one particular website or even make your own suggestions. And uh, when I initially looked into it, you know, it looked like maybe two or three other people had made suggestions of, uh, you know, Unchained Melody or, or some other, you know, pieces of classical music, you know, just very romantic tunes. And then I got there and saw what was available to me, the tools at hand, and saw that there were little to no restrictions. And then I just uh, set about ruining it as best I could. <laughs> You know, re- requesting uh, very suggestive White Snake songs, uh, ridiculous songs from Hatebeak or K9ish, uh, that even are barely bands. Just rock lobster 200 times, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, Sir Mix-a-Lot uh, about five different times, uh, anything hard I could uh, get a hold of. And then about a week after, uh, uh, when I went back to go and do another round of stupid uh, suggestions and uh, requests, uh, the, the site got locked down or that particular page of the site got locked down. So shucks and darn. Yeah. Well, I mean, very similarly, I mean, for a while, I mean, it's been a while since any of us have really been allowed to kind of go out to, you know, various, you know, establishments where people might hang out and stuff. But for a while, I do remember various clubs and, you know, pubs and stuff, bars and whatever would have, restaurants, whatever things would have like that, um, the app based jukebox where you download the app and you can basically just like request a song for, through the jukebox using the app and it's connected to in-app purchases. So like if you already have your credit card information in your phone and stuff, it's basically nothing to request a song. A former coworker of mine, actually, anytime we went anywhere, he would basically literally queue up like one is the loneliest number like actually 10 times in a row right before leaving every <laughs> single time <laughs> <laughs> so, which <laughs> you know which I think I think as a result of the, this, like, you know, I'm sure similar things have happened elsewhere in the world as well using systems like this and at least putting a limitation on the number of times you can kind of like vote and stuff like our number of songs in a row you can actually play are become a thing. But yeah, it's like 
things like that, it's like, holy crap. Like, yeah, like anytime you have an open system like that, you need to expect the worst from people. Oh, that is fantastic. Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> but still, it's like, yep. <laughs> I I never thought of that. But yeah, that's, oh, that's good. Yeah, no, that's... <laughs> That's something I'm going to keep in mind for uh, future occasions. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, always expect the worst. Never never let people have a free reign of, you know, any avenue that might just immediately become an unfiltered stream for them to say or do or broadcast whatever they want because people are the worst. <laughs> like this is the thing that you kind of have to learn. Like when you're in any like sort of like position where you're the person in control of something like this, people will try to ruin everything that you've put out there. That's good. So, yeah. Yeah, you almost uh, need someone on your team or some sort of outside perspective to uh, take a look at whatever product you're working on, product, service, website, whatever the case might be, and try to apply the stupid touch to it and see what they can do to it to, to break it and just have uh, free reign to, to ruin and destroy what it is uh, you and others have been working on, and then use that as your stress test. Yes, exactly. Find, find where the holes are, where the cracks are, where water is proverbially getting through, and uh, and fix them and patch them accordingly. Yeah. But uh, speaking of the trial that is now underway and began this week between Epic Games and Apple Corporation, not Apple Records, that's different, uh, but Epic and Apple, yes, be- got underway, and in the early stages, I think in uh, on Monday and Tuesday, the first uh, t- two, maybe even into the first three days of trial, uh, many documents were entered into the public record as exhibits in the trial on the part of uh, either Epic Games or Apple. That uh, brought a lot of interesting details to light. We're not here to give you the play-by-play or break down every revelation, every <clears throat> surprise, everything that uh, uh, took us, uh, took our breath away. We're not here to do that. Uh, the trial is going to go on for several, many weeks. And as we've said before, there will be generations of children coming after these current teams of lawyers who are going to basically basically not have to ever work again because of the money they're making and their ancestors made off this trial. Yes, exactly. So, but the the one detail that uh, came to light that uh, did catch my attention because it's uh, a very, very ridiculous number, and I'm sure it caught your attention as well because of the scale of the number as well, is this one right here. Uh, documents entered into the court record that actually gave an idea of just how successful a game Fortnite truly is. Again, Fortnite, a free-to-play game that makes its money entirely through small microtransactions of users, players, being able to buy different skins in the game. Packages of skins, individual skins, also buy in-game currency, that sort of thing. But there's no pay-to-win, there's no pay-for-extra-levels. It's just all cosmetic things that you can buy in the game. And you might think that's, uh, you know, obviously proven to be a successful model, but, uh, you know, really how much money could it make? You know, probably, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, then this uh, news came out uh, and put a, an exact number to things and uh, made my eyes go wide and probably made your eyes go wide as well. Yes, uh, very wide. So we knew that Fortnite had a, a huge install base. I mean, last I heard, I think what they say, it was something like 
how many people were playing Fortnite like overall across all platforms? Like I, I want to say it was some huge number, like over a billion people or something. Uh, I was going to say a hundred million, but it's, it, it's a hell of a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, it gets to a point when the, the number's so big that it doesn't even really matter if it's like, you know, if an extra zero is thrown on there, but yeah, like let's say a hundred million people. Uh, so we know that there's that level of people playing, but like, you know, yeah. So I, I guess like, your initial assumption of maybe a couple hundred million dollars a year might be, you know, not out of line or like hell, even like bump it up by like two or three, like assuming every single person spends at least a dollar on like microtransactions over the year, maybe like let's just say half a billion dollars a year might be kind of a fair assessment, but yeah, over the course of, um, 2018 and 2019, it was reported that Fortnite made more than nine billion dollars. Billion with a B. B as in Bumblebee or B as in, you know, billion. Billion. <laughs> yes. So yeah. Um, so if there's ever any doubt of like where Epic gets most, if not all of their money from, for reference, in addition to all of these, you know, well, in amongst all these financial board provided um, numbers that were presented as evidence into this trial, um, Apple, est- well, sorry, not Apple. Uh, I should say uh, the amount of money made by the uh, other parts of their business like the Unreal Engine and the Epic Games Store are literally dwarfed in comparison. Like the Unreal Engine brought in $221 million in revenue during the same time period as the Epic Games Store brought in $235 million in revenue. So $221 and $235 million in revenue by itself, like if you consider a company doing that in terms of revenue, they're doing very well. Like, there's no doubt about it. Like, the Epic Games Store is clearly profitable, as is the Unreal Engine. Clearly profitable. Like, combined, close to half a billion dollars. But it doesn't compare to Fortnite. Fortnite is, like, it's a whole other level of, like, it's it's a whole other upper echelon of what it's doing for them as a company. So those times in the uh, past uh, several months, uh, perhaps even several years, where we have uh, spoken about uh, companies doing rounds of private uh, venture capital funding into Fortnite that uh, give a uh, an evaluation to Fort to Epic Games uh, as being in the in the tens of billions. This is why, because yeah. they they have the literal goose that is laying golden eggs. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the points of comparison, of course, to how much money this truly is, just for a reminder for anyone that kind of forgot over the last couple of years, uh, Microsoft just spent $7.5 billion to buy all of Bethesda, Disney paid $4 billion for all of Star Wars and Lucasfilm, and Fortnite made more than that in 2018 alone. So over that two-year breakdown of... Uh... Fortnite generating $9 billion in revenue, $5.4 billion of that came in the 2018 calendar year, with 3.7 of that coming in 2019. So uh, a bit of a decline from year on year, and I'm sure, 
well, perhaps even, well, actually, I don't know. I was going to say even year on year from 2019 into 2020, that number declined. Then, of course, I remembered most people were homebound and uh, shut-ins for the year of 2020 because of the COVIDs. So that revenue number may have actually gone back up. Yeah, because I guess, you know, in a different financial board presentation from January 2020, Epic apparently did forecast that Fortnite would bring in another 2.7 billion. But of course, January 2020, the world hadn't shut down yet. That wasn't until March when the world shut down and, you know, basically all the lockdowns happened and COVID wrecked everything and forced everyone to be homebodies. So I think it's safe to assume that that 2.7 billion estimation is actually nowhere near accurate. So, Jesus H. Christ, I don't know what to make of this. Yeah, so it's interesting that this was kind of brought in. Um, this definitely provides more ammunition for Apple in terms of why they might feel like a little bit slighted by how this went down because clearly if Epic is making that much money and they decide, Hey, we want to cut Apple out of this, you know, uh, well, like, frankly, like if 30% of $10 billion, that's also in the billions of dollars, that's $3 billion right there. So, I'm sure Apple as a company is not happy about losing out on a potential $3 billion. So this certainly doesn't, you know, like this certainly bolsters their side of their argument. Now, whether or not that, like, I think that's the real question that Epic is trying to get to the bottom of. It's like, should you be allowed to get that degree of benefit from this? So it'll be very interesting to see, where this ends up going when it eventually goes wherever it's going to go. That's true because there's going to be a lot of twists and turns and uh, uh, assertions, consternations and whatnot uh, over the coming days and weeks of this trial between Apple and Epic games. And my thought too, seeing this number of 9 billion generated from Fortnite over the span of just two years alone, which is now if you factor in, 2020 totals and you know for the first say four months of 2021 that's over got to be over 12 to 13 billion dollars that Fortnite has generated in revenue which is just a stupid amount of revenue where even if epic games had nothing else going on and they shut down stopped creating products stopped doing whatever else they've now, granted, that's not $12 billion sitting in a stockpile that they can just freely access. It's not like they have their Scrooge McDuck coin vault where they can go play. But as a company, when you have something generating that ridiculous amount of revenue, that is an un- untold amount of runway you have as a company to go in however many directions and do kind of really whatever the hell you want to do. Yeah, and it's very interesting that you say that because I find it kind of like crazy that as a company they use that huge runway to go on what i guess a lot of companies might consider a suicide run (laughs) against you know the goliath that is apple uh but i'm sure in the mind of epic games they are believing it to be a crusade a good and righteous crusade yeah and i mean like there's nothing wrong with that i just do find it amusing because that that's not 
you know, running towards the fire like that is not normally what you might want to do as a business, right? I, true. Normally a, a business company and uh, sound-minded uh, business people will avoid controversy, avoid anything that uh, would be costly endeavors with no potential gain or positive outcome. And uh, just continue uh, doing things that will uh, be beneficial to the bottom line. Uh, there's nothing about this trial that is beneficial to Epic's bottom line. No. I mean, maybe maybe eventually it might be. Because, again, like if they are making $9 billion and having to – or $10 billion, let's say, and having to, you know, pay out $3 billion of it, I mean, $3 billion is not chump change. It, like – that is, I think by all, you know, I think the technical term for it is still a shitload of money. <laughs> so, um, maybe the end goal here is like even, even reducing it down to $2 billion might be seen as a huge win. And I mean, maybe they've calculated all the legal costs in the battle out to be, you know, maybe even less than the, the potential, like, like the, the the disparity between what they hope to get as an outcome probably outweighs drastically outweighs the legal fees and the potential hit they'll take right now. And I, I'm going to offer too that one of the outcomes they're looking to hopefully gain with this trial is not even calculable through money. They are looking for a precedent to be set. Yes, for a trial judge to determine that uh, Apple. Uh, is running a monopoly for that monopoly to be broken and or potentially the the Apple tax, the, the share that or thir- the 30% that Apple takes to be reduced. But if Apple's monopoly on the App Store is broken and then other game sellers can have their marketplace put up in the App Store as well, well, then potentially doesn't that mean the that the Epic Game Store could be put up in the App Store as well? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, get to a marketplace through another marketplace. Yeah. It sounds crazy, but yeah, there's a lot more, I think, going on uh, that Epic Games is looking to achieve beyond just money. Although the money, of course, helps. But by being a privately uh, held company, they don't have to be all about money and earnings and uh, returning value for shareholders that some other companies have to be. Yeah. And I mean, like, obviously they do have a board, but like, again, being a private company, you have that, you have that kind of level of freedom where you can kind of curate your board to be more like, um, like philosophically in line with what you want to achieve as a company. So yeah, like if everyone on your board is all on, literally, like, forget the pun, on board for, you know, this crusade type approach, great. And even if they aren't, does that really matter if, Twim, uh, if Tim Sweeney is still the uh, majority voice, majority uh, owner and shareholder in the company? Yeah, exactly. So that that all becomes kind of mute if, uh, you know, five of the six board members are all, you know, hackling and raising their fists and saying, no, we shouldn't do this. But Tim Sweeney's still got all the power and saying, yeah, we're doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I would like to see the uh the the earnings uh chart the graph of uh, Fortnite's earnings over the past years and just see not the the steady gradual growth but the goddamn incline that it seems to have gone on 
Yeah, like it's it seems very much like a hockey stick. Yeah, hockey stick or just like all of a sudden like a mountain appearing out of nowhere. Just yeah. like, okay, you know, grow, you know, a little bit of revenue, a little bit of revenue. Holy hell, Everest is right there. And that's the money we've made. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. So there's going to be more to come out in the days and weeks ahead, as we've said, through this trial. We're not going to cover every detail, every blow by blow. Uh, that's, and that's too in the weeds for us. That's, uh, that's too, uh, inside baseball for us. But, uh, if there are some interesting headlines like this one that come out, uh, we'll of course discuss them in the future here on this program. But speaking of legal matters, let us turn our attention now to another big gaming company that is facing a legal issue of its own. News coming down just a few days ago that Sony, they who make the PlayStation, have been hit with a class action lawsuit by a group of gamers who believe that Sony has a monopoly on digital game sales, uh, all because it was a couple of years ago, Sony stopped allowing other sellers, other retailers like a Best Buy or an Amazon, and stopped them from uh, selling codes for digital PlayStation games. Yeah. Um, Bloomberg uh, kind of broke this story a little bit, and they were saying that the group believes that uh, Sony's monopoly on these digital game sales allows it to charge super competitive prices, uh, super competitive prices, so non-competitive prices, that is to say, for digital PlayStation games, which are significantly higher than their physical counterparts sold in competitive retail market. Uh, so... I guess on the one hand, you might just say, well, why don't you just buy the the physical copy then? But I guess like on that other note, as a retailer, like you, it's effectively almost just like a matter of just clicking generate code and then, you know, printing out a piece of paper. So there's almost theoretically infinite stock. So in theory, I, I mean, I, I actually don't know how this specifically works, but – I see where they're coming from. Uh, yeah, this proposed class action lawsuit does suggest that a competitive retail market for digital games would likewise see more competitive and consumer-friendly prices, and they argue that under the current setup, PlayStation owners end up paying up to 175% more for digital games than they would for the same game on a physical disc. Well, that seems like uh, uh, quite the increase in uh, in pricing. Yeah, and this, again, kind of is a slap in the face to uh, a notion that uh, I think you and I have both held in regards to the pricing of uh, games on digital marketplaces, that if they're available in both a physical form and a digital form, you know, shouldn't the digital you know version of the game be cheaper? Yeah. No, I mean, like, granted, I do recognize that games are kind of at you know, way cheaper now than they ever used to be to purchase. So with that caveat in mind, because of course, like, again, like I remember going back through, like I had found like some flyer that, you know, had fallen to the bottom of some tchotchke box or box of junk that I was going through even a couple of years ago. And I, I noticed that it had final, like, I, I, I always remember this. It was final fantasy three, for the Super Nintendo, which, you know, we later found out was actually Final Fantasy VI, but it was called Final Fantasy III at the time, so, like, this would have been from about 1994, 1995. And it was being sold for $109 at the time. So, and it wasn't, like, I, it, 
brand new or not, $109 for a physical copy of a game in 1995 money, let's say, is close to like $150 now in terms of like adjusting for inflation and stuff. So new games now are about $80. So they're, they're super cheap now in comparison, but that's not the point. Like the fact that we have, like we never had the option to buy things digital back then and we do now and there's no manufacturing process anymore with the digital side of things. So why is, is, are you, do you mean to tell me that literally like, there's no difference. <laughs> and, and not only that, uh, back when you saw that uh, ad for Final Fantasy going for, you know, $110 or roughly what, again, 150 in today's value of, of money, that was just for the basic Super Nintendo game. That wasn't yes. a special edition. That wasn't a bundle with extra artwork, soundtrack, uh, figurine or anything of that nature. That was just the game. Yeah. Cardboard box, physical cartridge, cardboard insert, and some the instruction booklet, warranty cards, the uh, the health and safety warnings. Don't sit too close to the TV. Prolonged exposure. Blah blah blah. This sort of thing. But yeah, just the box, just the game for that hundred ten dollar price point. Yeah. I mean, hearing you say that, again, uh, reminds me of uh, when I paid over $100 for Pokemon Stadium on the N64, and I thought that was a hard <laughs> pill to swallow at the time, but at least you're also getting the attachment to play Pokemon Game Boy games on your N64 on the big screen. Yep. So that that just makes the, uh, the price point for Final Fantasy and that flyer look that much more ridiculous. It sure does. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I understand where these people are coming from. So, I mean, it is a very good point. Like competition does breed better prices for consumers. And by eliminating competition, you kind of remove that choice, which sucks. And uh, then also creates a bit of a monopoly uh, in this case for Sony in regards to how their digital digital game sales are handled. So uh, we shall see if this uh, turns into anything actually goes ahead to trial. I uh, it's a proposed class action lawsuit. Uh, I believe it's still in the very very early stages uh, of working its way through the legal process. If anything actually comes from it, we will of course update you on this program, but speaking of Sony and tying into, again, the fact we spoke of Epic Games earlier, Sony is a company that has done private investing into Epic Games through, I think, the last two or three rounds of uh, of venture capital funding uh, that Epic Games has done. So Sony has a small percentage stake in Epic Games, which is one of the, uh, of course, one of the popular companies out there in the marketplace, but Turns out they've also done, uh, uh, they, they spread the wealth around a bit and they've now done some investing in Discord. Yeah. Um, now we don't know how much. We don't know what uh, percentage of uh, ownership stake they have in Discord, but it was a, uh, according to an official blog post on Sony's company website, it was a minor contribution, but this is going to lead to uh, a greater degree of interaction and connection between the two companies, won't it? Yeah. Well, I, the thing I find most interesting about this though, is that even just within the last few weeks, there's been sort of like, you know, 
a scuttlebutt around uh, like uh, there, there's been sort of a rumor that Microsoft was in talks to be purchasing Discord. So I guess this puts a stop to that. It does. That's uh, that's a rumor I had been reading for a while too, with uh, a price tag estimated in scuttlebutt readings of mine that uh, was going to be around ten billion dollars. Yeah. So it makes me wonder how much money did Sony put into Discord, and what did that actually get them if the price tag was ten billion? The the rumored price yeah. tag was ten billion for sole ownership and a buyout of Discord. What's Sony putting in and what are they getting? And is that cheaper? And this still allows Discord as a company to remain independent and still gives them options in the future if, say, they want to do their own stock offering. Hmm. Um, now, that yes. being said, it's uh, as I said, it's going to uh, lead to greater integration between the two companies as uh, Discord is going to work its way to integrate into the PlayStation Network in some way, shape, or form uh, on both PlayStation consoles and mobile platforms. Not this year, because I guess they've just looked at the calendar and said, oh, we've got these other things going. You know, June, it's this person's birthday. And then, you know, then you hit the 4th of July, and then it's Labor Day not long after. So, you know, 2022 is a better year. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't believe that's actually how the conversation went, but you know, I, I'm surmising, not being not being in the room where it happened. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, it's it's uh, it's probably more along the lines of like other roadmap items kind of standing in the way of you know a potential hard pivot like this. But yeah, I mean, it's still now definitely firmly on the roadmap of something to happen. You know, by 2022. So. So Sony kind of uh, spreading their seed around and spreading their wealth around by investing in some degree in these other tech companies that could grow into much larger tech companies. Yeah. Interesting. And of course, the, the Xbox division is a uh, you know an arm, one of the tendrils of the very large Microsoft corporation. And then you have uh, Nintendo, who are still just kind of over there solely being Nintendo. Yeah. Um but that's a nice little uh, thing to mention here and a nice little transition into our next story. Nintendo being Nintendo, you know, they uh, they kind of go by the beat of their own drum and they really uh, seem to be kind of disconnected from everyone else in many different ways. You know, for better or for worse, I mean, sometimes it's a little frustrating, but other times it's really cool. And in this case, there is a pretty cool thing that they're, they've decided to kind of put out there. I mean... Uh, there's a pretty interesting, um, like, uh, trailer come out in the last week or so for a little thing called Game Builder Garage. And, uh, it's, yeah, it, to me, it basically seems kind of like, you know, they're going, they're taking what they started with Mario Maker and decided to go full on crazy. 
yeah, yeah, and, and flesh that idea out even further. Now, Mario Maker being a uh, a game that uh, we all have, uh, that we all know and uh, perhaps don't love because of the creations we have seen people make in terms of the levels out uh, that are put uh, out there for play or posted to YouTube for people to watch and just see the true level of sadism that people have in their level creation as uh, they act as level designers with the tools put out there in Super Mario Maker. But that's what it is. It's a tool, and people can make what they want. And uh, there's a small element of game design and game development to it. But Nintendo is going even harder in that uh, gamification of, uh, of a game development tool with this Game Builder Garage, as it looks to be truly a tool to learn uh, basic programming ideas and development ideas. Yeah. It's uh, it's got a visual programming language. So if you are a lay person, or if you perhaps know a young person who might be interested in this, or you're going to try and get them into this as a, a field of interest in the STEM, well, in STEM, uh, then you don't have to worry about them knowing or you yourself knowing any sort of coding or programming language because it's all done visually, where the pieces of code are represented in ways other than. You know, ones, zeros, or other kinds of characters. Yeah, like you don't need to know traditional programming concepts like control structures and while loops and if statements and things like that. You instead use what they call, um, well, it's, it uses what they have built, like, it's a visual programming language built around these creatures called Nodon, uh, each of which serve different functions such as moving characters, pressing buttons, or manipulating objects in combination with uh, step-by-step lessons created by Nintendo to make programming fun and accessible. So they've gamified game creation or gamified learning programming, which seems pretty cool. So like, yeah, according to uh, Chris Kerr of Gamasutra.com, he says, by utilizing these Nodon and following Nintendo's guided lessons, players will learn how to build seven basic games, including a physics-based puzzler, a single-player racer, and a multiplayer morsel, ta- uh, morsel called Tag Showdown. Um, yeah, so then after you get, after you've basically gone through these, let's just call them levels, like each game being built seems like either a level or a world or something, like if you consider, like if you think back to like in in classic Nintendo terms, like if you think back to uh like Mario three or something, the first world is like that introductory world at the end of that first world, you'll have one type of game under your belt, the next world is another type of game, the next world is another type of game and stuff, and after you do all this, there's a free programming mode like once once you've beaten quote unquote the whole game, this free programming mode will appear, which you know allows would be developers to really flex your creative muscles and start working on your own, you know, potential, you know, crazy thing that you want to put out there. Uh, it'll be possible to exchange games, work on projects together and see the programming behind them using shareable code, letting players learn from each other and hone their skills. So yeah, that I think is going to be where the real value in this comes from. Uh, but also like very subtly as well, even though you are going to be learning well, effectively, this just one visual programming language using these nodons, when they say, you know, you're learning things like moving characters, pressing buttons, or manipulating objects, to me, that sounds like the more applicable terms would be, uh, basically like pathfinding, um, event handling, 
and, you know, uh, I guess manipulating objects still works in programming language context as well. But like, these are all very real concepts that, you know, can be hard to teach, but don't have to be in terms of like real world programming, um, uh, language basically. So as a, uh, as someone who's been in the web development field for, uh, several years by this point, um, do you think this would closely approximate, uh, I guess, uh, what coding and uh, programming actually can be? Yeah. I mean, like if I'm being honest there, this kind of reminded me there is another, I don't remember what it's called because it, you know, it came out a little bit after, you know, I'd already been through college and stuff, but this reminds me of another more visual, um, programming language that came out as well. Oh, but the uh, problem, would it be hour of code? Oh, the, that's one of them, but there was a different one. Like it was a specific language made. It was basically, it was called like stacks or something or like, uh, something like that. But the problem with that was, I think it was more of like an open source, Endeavor and like, you know, it was just like some open source consortium putting together this language, you know, using their own resources and stuff. And it might have had some level of corporate backing and sponsorship and stuff, but that, you know, that doesn't have the same effect as Nintendo releasing a Nintendo game that any, any kid can look at and go, Oh, that looks cool. I get to build games for myself or like, you know, cause we also know that like, Nintendo themselves as a company make quality games. So I would imagine that first and foremost, this probably will be a quality game in and of itself where, you know, learning the rules of the game and learning how to actually play the game is actually also teaching you all these real concepts that you can kind of move forward to, you know, in actually building games yourself. So It'll like, I'm very interested to check this out. Like I'll probably buy a copy of it myself when it comes out and when it's available. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's very exciting. Like I, I think, I think anything that can kind of demystify and make programming less scary to people, I think is good because I think a lot of people just get kind of like in their head and think like, Oh, I'm too dumb for this. I'm not, you know, I, I don't. Like, I don't have the mind for this. It's like, no, like, it, it's not, it's not crazy math. It's not crazy science. Like, literally, it's just kind of like logic and thinking through how, like, what you want to happen when X happens. Like, based on whatever input, what's the output? That's all programming is. I, I think like, one if of you've the- ever made- Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I think if you've ever made even like an Excel spreadsheet, in a way, you are kind of programming. Like if you're, if you, if you say, okay, I want this one cell to be this math formula based on the input of this one cell and the input of this one cell, that's programming. That's all it is. But I think some people don't think of it that way and, you know, get a little bit in their head, but I'm really excited to see what this does. Like the, the preview I saw looked very interesting. I, and uh, the point I was going to say, and uh, I apologize for interrupting you, but again, we're doing this remotely still. So it's bound to happen. Uh, there will come a point in the future when we're back in the same physical space again and look at each other and go, Oh, whoo, woof. Um, (laughs) 
And then you can see how ridiculous my long hair has become. So <laughs> that'll be a thing. But uh, the point I was going to make about this game builder garage uh, and the, and programming at large, kind of what makes it uh, just a really tough nut to crack and for people to kind of get into if they don't perhaps have natural inclina- inclinations towards uh you know, computer uh, development or things of that nature is the languages used in programming themselves. Uh, they're not easy to teach to a, to a non-inclined person to bring them along. And I think that's where the real benefit of these visual programming languages really come from, is that they're representing what is happening and what you need to happen, not as characters on a screen, like, or, or being typed out in a notepad or whatever, you know, window, but as perhaps, uh, depending on the occasion, point and click, you know, I think as, uh, was seen in the trailer for this game builder garage, uh, representing things as connecting points. Yep. Or as I have experienced, as, uh, I mentioned, uh, hour of code, I've played around with hour of code myself, I think. Several years ago now at this point when I had time to kill between flights when I was just waiting in an airport, but uh, I had roughly an hour to kill, slightly less. I didn't finish the tutorial, but I played around with it and I actually enjoyed going through the hour of code lesson because things were represented in a visual fashion that I can understand. And going through it, to me, it was like playing with uh, like puzzle pieces. Yeah. And in order to get things work, you connect this to that, and that's how it all fits together. And, oh, hey, I just made the robot move eight squares. Son of a bitch. Yeah, well, I mean, like, in a way, that that really is all programming is, right? Like, of course, like, sometimes coming up with an idea could be hard, but – and, like, sometimes it might be, you know, not – glamorous, fun, flashy things like making a robot move or designing a game. Some like more often than not, like for example, in my field, like as a web developer, one of my web developer friends has put it like, all we basically do is we just manipulate the basically text inputs and like turn it into other outputs is all we basically do, whether it's from, you know, one data source or another, like, but, at the end of the day, yeah, it's like, like it's no different from a website. Like, it's a, if I click this button on the website, I want it to actually submit all of this information and then store it in a database. So, like, there's no reason why you know something like that couldn't be represented in some visual means, right? Like, it's like, hi, I'm I'm Mister. I'm Mr. You know, data gatherer. I'm going to ask a user over here for these four pieces of information. Once I have them, I'm going to go talk to Mr. Web server himself and he's going to take all the information and then he's going to, you know, push this information over into Mr. Data transformer who then will prepare the data for Mr. Database to actually take it and save it. And then once that's all done, we're going to go back up the chain and then we're going to go back up and tell Mr. You know, web server, hey, now tell the user everything is good. Oh, okay, I'm going to like, gonna talk to Mr. Notifier guy, and then Mr. Notifier guy over there is going to tell everyone, hey, everything's good. Thumbs up. You can move on now. And that's kind of like all it is. I mean, of course, like, <laughs> there's no fun programming languages when you're in like the professional world. Like, that doesn't really make sense in that case. Like, you know, like, obviously 
things have to be kind of like more performant and whatnot. But anyways, yeah, it's like TLDR, I'm excited to see what this does. And also I think very much like Mario Maker, I think actually, if I'm being honest, my favorite part about Mario, Mario Maker is all of like getting to play basically an infinite number of levels provided to me by the community that, you know, just, they're not all good. They're not all bad. They're not all super hard, but like, you know, on occasion it's like, oh, that was a really fun level. I'll give it a thumbs up and add to my favorites. Cool. Now I can go back and play it whenever I want. So that's fun. And the potential of like, you know, being able to download who knows how many possible games. I mean, it'll be very interesting. Like people, people can be very creative and, yeah, I'm excited by the prospect of basically an infinite number of potential fun games for the Switch. It's true. Uh, we don't know if there will be any sort of uh, perhaps um, ability to more professionally release titles or if uh, something that starts off as an idea built in Game Builder Garage can then be uh, more formally produced and professionally released for monies and profits. We don't know. That will come down the line. But yeah. I'd imagine, too, Nintendo as a company will uh, no doubt have other uh, packages of uh, new content to release for Game Builder Garage, uh, modules to teach you how to build these other sorts of games, like an air hockey game or, or a sports game or some sort of nature. Perhaps even uh, uh, release packages of uh, Mario-themed art assets, where you can put a uh, Mario cap on the Nodons as they play through whatever game or something to that effect. And also, I'm now I'm now picturing these Nodons eventually becoming characters in Super Smash Brothers. Oh, probably. Uh, where there may be some element of programming where you have to, you know, select uh, and detail their move set before you can actually use them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, this is a really neat idea, and you mentioned kind of towards the start of this conversation that Nintendo produces quality games. In their games, they have a really good track record of being able to teach, you know, concepts in the early stages of a game to bring you along and uh, gradually increase the difficulty as you go along. Picture any Mario game you've ever played, you know, starts off really simple and easy and then just, you know, can become really challenging as you get to like World 8 or something like that, the Bowser Castle. Yeah, like it, it's, it introduces you to the different concepts like, oh, Here's your first Goomba. So, like, you know, it teaches you one of these buttons is jump. Oh, once I jump, I can jump over him. Or what happens if I jump on him? Oh, okay. I can jump on him as well. Oh, okay, great. Now he's gone. Cool. And I can also hit these these uh question mark blocks. And once I've got the mushroom, I can actually break these other blocks. Oh, look, a turtle. I can jump on him as well. Oh, but his shell's still around. What happens if I walk into the shell? Oh, it, it ricochets along. Oh, okay. So, yeah, like, there's no, in, I mean, I think they're, they probably did explain all of that stuff in the instruction book, but it was a little bit redundant because it, it's kind of self-apparent when you're, like, a good video game, these lessons are kind of self-apparent as you go, and they're kind of self-apparently taught, and you don't really need handheld, you, know, you don't really need your handheld, and you shouldn't need endless tutorials, and, like, here's how I do this one thing, and, like, oh, Remember to press A to open your inventory and remember to do this other thing. And it's just kind of like over tutorializing, you know, it's, it's a good balance between like explaining too much and like letting people have their own eureka moments and stuff. Nintendo are pretty okay at the eureka moments. So yeah. 
They are, and even uh, if you get this and you get into the the free build, free programming mode where you can make your own uh, levels, games, uh, design, you know, whatever is uh, rattling around inside your head, if you get stuck on something, I dare suspect there's going to be a, a pretty robust community build up around this game as well to offer help, ideas, solutions, whatever the case might be. Yeah, I would imagine so. And perhaps their own version of uh, like a GitHub or something. Yeah, and if not if not an explicit community, then at least like you can you'll likely see you know YouTube videos and stuff crop up where with you know solving whatever problems you're trying to solve. So yeah, yeah. Majority of the time, whatever problem you encounter is not unique or specific to you. Yeah, you'll be able to Google or YouTube a solution. Exactly. So this game comes out again, this game, Game Builder Garage. Uh, we're both really interested in it. Uh, you as a professional developer to see how it uh, approximates what you, uh, what your experience has been and what you do. And of course, then get into the free build mode. I, as a lay person with a very rudimentary understanding of things who enjoys the visual aspect of uh, programming languages that as a visual learner and a visual person, this helps me just get things done. Uh, it comes out for the Switch on June 11th in both digital and physical copies for a price point of $29.99 US dollars. Figure that out in your local currency. So in Canada here, probably I'd guess 50 bucks. Yeah, probably. <laughs> There's that cross-border uh, upcharge every time. <laughs> exactly. But uh, speaking of Nintendo, uh, some higher-up corporate news as they released uh, some details from their most recent fiscal quarter. Uh, we won't get into those details. They were impressive. They sold a lot of Switches, made a lot of money, uh, one of their most profitable years ever. Uh, I believe Animal Crossing is now up to, what, 32 million units sold uh, lifetime to date, Uh Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, still the best-selling Switch title at uh, 35 million title or copies sold lifetime to date. But uh, one of the details that uh, I think is smaller and didn't get a lot of attention but caught my attention is the fact that Nintendo is going to be dominating uh, someone entirely outside of the company, entirely outside of the gaming business, to sit... Add their board as an out, uh, what they're terming an outside director, but basically have a seat at their high up corporate executive table as this outside director. And it's going to be uh, a person by the name of Chris, uh, Mela Dandiri or Delan Dandri. I'm butchering that name. So we both yeah, have butchered I'll, names today. I'll, yeah, I'll read it as Chris Mela Dandri. Chris Melodandry, the name is not going to be familiar to you at all, and that's entirely understandable, but Chris Melodandry is the CEO of Illumination, which is the uh, computer CG animation studio behind Minions, Despicable Me, uh, Secret Life of Pets. They're also the studio that's currently working with Nintendo and Shigeru Miyamoto on the Mario animated movie. So Chris Melodandry is going to have a seat at the table as an outside director. Now he will not have any sort of voting rights or any sort of, you know, uh, uh, job uh, requirements or, or tasks to do or whatnot, basically be there as an outside voice at the table. But this also marks the first time that Nintendo will have an American citizen sitting at their executive table like this as an outside director. Yeah. 
just to just to clarify though, it's not the first time they've had an outside director. They currently have three of them, but yeah, this is the first time an American has held this position. And it's an American who's from the world of uh, CG and film animation. Yeah, as opposed to video games. As opposed to video games or just straight up business or accounting or anything like of that nature. Yeah. And so this is a really interesting idea. Again, taking in light of the fact that Nintendo and Illumination are working on the Mario movie, uh, closely working together. That has been the uh, line that both companies have put forward from the time that the project was announced. Chris Melodandry, I think, making clear in interviews and, and uh, statements at the time, I think going back to November of 2018, that, you know, Shigeru Miyamoto is there. They are running ideas by him. He is bringing ideas to the table. He is very much involved making clear that they do not want to repeat the uh, missteps of the first Mario Brothers movie with Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo. <laughs> I mean, it's not a terrible movie. I mean, it's it's not a good movie in terms of, like, the traditional things you'd look for in quote-unquote good movies. doesn't mean it's not an, not an enjoyable movie. It's fun, perhaps for all the wrong reasons, though. Yeah, it's not unwatchable Drek. Yeah. So Chris Melodandry uh, has been nominated to it. He will uh, still need to be confirmed at the uh, 81st Annual General Meeting of Shareholders. Uh, that meeting is set to take place on June 29th, 2021. Likely a formality, as I'm sure the board will uh, tell the shareholders uh, that they are recommending they vote in favor of his nomination. Uh, these sorts of things happen. Uh, and I'm going to guess that a majority of the shareholders will vote in favor of it, just based on the board's recommendation. If uh, I was a shareholder, I would likely vote against whatever the board tells me to do, but I also enjoy injecting a small bit of chaos into these proceedings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not my first time doing those things, but uh, yes. So it'll be interesting to uh, see if there's any sort of uh, change in approach, or does this just open the door for closer integration between Nintendo and Illumination, paving the way perhaps in the future for animated uh, film projects beyond just Mario. Uh, do we see perhaps a Kirby movie one day down the line? Perhaps a Legend of Zelda or a Donkey Kong uh, movie as well? Perhaps a new Donkey Kong CG animated series that actually looks good? Yeah, I mean, hopefully, maybe. Uh, I'm not going to say hopefully. I don't have an opinion on that. <laughs> I'm going to walk that back a little bit. But uh, yeah. <laughs> So we'll see. Uh, we'll see, but it's uh, it's an interesting idea. Nintendo getting some outside perspective, some really outside perspective for this outside director. But uh, yeah. one last news item to get to here on this this episode of the arcade, and we'll uh, turn our attention now from Japan, uh, where Nintendo is housed, all the way to the uh, the quiet suburbs of Rochester, New York. The, the quaint, great place to live that is, I don't actually know, I'm guessing. I don't want to be smart a town I've never been to or know that much about. But uh, I do know it is home to the Strong National Museum of Play, which is also home to the World Video Game Hall of Fame. And the World Video Game Hall of Fame, just this week, sending out a press release announcing the four latest inductees into its World Video Game Hall of Fame. These are titles that have historical significance that deserve a place to be enshrined forever, forever and ever until the end of days as being some of the pinnacles of video game achievement. Yeah. I was going to jokingly also say that, you know, Rochester, New York was also a place, I think, where known for Jim the Hammer Shapiro. <laughs> as, uh, 
as we were one of the weird Canadian outlets where we, for some reason, got uh, the Rochester's Fox affiliate, WUHF, on cable. Um, and we would always see the American ads therein, most often Jim the Hammer Shapiro because he was ridiculous. Um, and, of course, you remember it because uh, he would uh, tout in those commercials about the fact that uh, he was an SOB, but he's your SOB. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um but yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, but I don't think he's around there anymore. But what is there is the strong National Museum of Play. And yes, we have talked about this, I think, for the last as long as it's been a thing on this program. I think this is the fifth or sixth uh, class of inductees that they've done. Yeah. Now, obviously, the first, you know, you can imagine the first two or three classes having all the important games, uh, you know, uh, if not in the first class, then spread amongst those first three classes of inductees, the ones you can think of, you know, your Sonic, your Tetris, your Super Mario Brothers, you know, your Myst, uh, you know, the absolute ones you think of as being like the high achievements or the important ones in the history of modern video gaming. Uh, and so now into the, the fifth and sixth year classes, uh, maybe they're not the the absolute stalwarts but uh still important and enjoyable video games all the same only four games made the cut this year and the list of inductees into the 2021 uh class in the World Video Game Hall of Fame includes Microsoft Flight Simulator Where in the World is Carmen San Diego StarCraft and Animal Crossing for the GameCube yeah, the original one. So those are the four titles. Once again, Microsoft Flight Simulator, Where in the World is Carmen San Diego, StarCraft, and Animal Crossing. Now, those four titles got uh, the most votes and beat out other potential nominees, such as Mortal Kombat, Pong, Bejeweled, Oregon Trail. Uh, I believe Tron was in there as well. The the original version of Call of Duty, not Call of Duty, whatever they're up to, the second or third incarnation of something called Call of Duty. Um, uh, the the Mattel electronic handheld football game was nominated as well. So, uh, so yes, it's uh, it beat out eight other, or these four titles beat out eight other contenders. And uh, your thoughts on this class? Uh, does anything stand out as uh, being right? Yes, a thing that should have been there, or perhaps uh, maybe uh, there are some other games you would have uh, swapped out uh, titles for. I mean, I'm. On board for StarCraft and Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. And to a degree, I guess, I think it makes sense for Microsoft Flight Simulator. I actually don't remember what's been, um, what's been inducted so far. So I can't, you know, say one way or the other that, you know, I feel too, um, too strongly one way or the other that like, oh, why wasn't this, you know, nominated over this, but that kind of thing. So, yeah, but um yeah, none of them seem bad. Like I think I think that's the sort of thing like, you know, there's always going to be some uh some level of like personal opinion that goes into these type of things. So, of course, everyone is going to have their own um uh 
you know, opinion on what constitutes like a game that should be in the, uh, the hall of fame or whatever. But I mean, I, I think nothing that they've chosen seems too out of line. No, everything seems very appropriate and it seems like they are, uh, doing, trying to be uh, authentic and true to the history of video gaming and, uh, the, you know, importance of certain games in that history. Yeah. So, uh, other games that uh, were nominated, I think I misspoke earlier, uh, uh, but, uh, other titles that were nominated as well. Sorry, I didn't miss, misspeak, but I just didn't uh, give the whole list. Some other ones that could have been nominated for induction were uh, Guitar Hero, Pole Position, Portal, as well as Farmville. So, yeah, uh, you know, of the uh, available options, I think this, uh, this, these four work. Um, Animal Crossing strikes me as uh, almost a little too recent to or to be getting into uh, the Hall of Fame. Uh, but at the same time, Actually, maybe that's just, you know, aging me and making me feel old and uncomfortable and uncomfortable <laughs> with how old I feel. Yeah, maybe. Actually, yeah. Having said that, though, yeah. Um, Bejeweled, Oregon Trail, Mortal Kombat, and Pong were inducted last year. All right. So, all right. Good. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. just looking at their website, actually, there's a decent amount of games so far that have been inducted. I mean, I guess I can go through the list just as a reminder. There's not too, too many. It's about, oh, I'd say it's probably about 30 or so. Like Animal Crossing, Bejeweled, Centipede, Colossal Cave Adventure, Donkey Kong, Doom, Final Fantasy VII, Grand Theft Auto III, Halo Combat Evolved, John Madden Football, King's Quest, Legend of Zelda, Microsoft Flight Simulator, Microsoft Solitaire, Minecraft, Mortal Kombat, Oregon Trail, Pac-Man, Pokemon Red and Green, Pong, The Sims, Sonic the Hedgehog, Space Invaders, Space War, Starcraft, Street Fighter II, Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario Kart, Tetris, Tomb Raider, Where in the World is Carbon San Diego, and World of Warcraft. So, decent list so far. Decent, and yeah, again, like their list. Yeah, and their 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 selection criteria status has to fall under four different categories. One, they need icon status. The game is widely recognized and remembered. They need longevity. The game is more than a passing fad and has enjoyed popularity over time. Geographical reach is another category where the game meets the above criteria across international boundaries. And finally, influence. The game has exerted a significant influence on the design and development of other games or on other forms of entertainment or on popular culture and society in general. A game may be inducted on the basis of this criterion without necessarily having met all of the first three. So I think that's where Animal Crossing does actually fall into this because it was basically a slow, like, um, casual game where there was no real rush on actually, you know, completing any of the objectives. And it was basically just at your own pace whenever you're ready. Also, there's other stuff just kind of going on. And arguably, that's sort of acted as an influence on not only just future Animal Crossing games, but other games in general have kind of introduced that in the intervening years. Like I, I actually think of, you know, uh, Stardew Valley, even though like you might look at Stardew Valley and think, Oh, this is kind of, 
just like a harvest moon, but no, there's enough stuff in Stardew Valley that also seems very animal crossing ish as well. So anyways, that's just one other game I'm listing, but I'm sure there's other parallels you can probably draw, but yeah, that's their criteria. That's the games that are in the museum so far. What are they missing? What could possibly be next year's like in next year's, um, you know, uh, list should Tron be in there? I'd imagine Portal gets in on next year's list. Hmm, I could see that. I could see or Portal. Maybe not Portal, but maybe even Half-Life? That's a, yeah, that's a good one. Like, I guess when it would come down to it, would it be Half-Life or would it be Portal? Well, they're both, well, I think you can split those two. They are separate and entirely distinct experiences. Hmm. So, I mean, yes, Portal we first got as part of the the orange box, but, uh, I mean, it is a separate, distinct title from everything else on the, you know, contained in the orange box. So I would certainly include it in there. Uh, here's a, here's uh, an interesting thought experiment. Does something like Guitar Hero qualify to be enshrined into the World Video Game Hall of Fame? Given that... While it had popularity that crossed international boundaries for several years, in the time since its initial release, uh, at least in my opinion, we can look back and see it was a fad. Yeah. I don't know if the longevity and, and long-lasting impact of Guitar Hero, Guitar Hero uh, has, has been there. That's a very interesting thought experiment for sure. Now, I will leave this all up to the, the International Selection Committee and Selection Advisory Committee who have to do these sorts of thought experiments uh, and rack their brains, have the debates back and forth about it. Uh, but let us know your thoughts on uh, what you still want to see included for next year's class uh, of inductees into the World Video Game Hall of Fame. You can email us info at com or hit us up through social media. We're at The Arcade Show on both Twitter and Facebook. So like, like the core essential titles, it seems to be uh, by this point have been inducted into the hall of fame already. Now you're kind of getting into, okay, what's next? What's maybe not core essential, but what's the next step down? What's, you know, really good, a very high watermark for gaming uh, or for a game. Yeah. So this is uh, a debate to be had for uh, the years ahead for the World Video Game located uh, or World yeah, Video Game Hall of Fame located at the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. So uh yeah, good good uh, good debates all around. I wonder how much of uh, Animal Crossing stock was helped out by the fact that uh Animal Crossing uh New Horizons came out in March of last year and proved proved to be just a wild success. Yeah, well, I mean, it came out the timing was 100% perfect, right? So like it couldn't have been more perfect timing because it was just literally when COVID happened, you know, like it was just perfect timing. It was like this super stressful thing now happened and people need to kind of stay at home. What better way to release stress than basically like a game that effectively is meditation, the game. Yeah. That uh, at a time when people needed it too, when the world felt like it was falling apart. 
Yeah. So, uh, I, I can see that, but, uh, yeah, so that is your class of inductees into, uh, the World Video Game Hall of Fame for this year. But, uh, those are all old titles of, uh, certain prestige, certain milestones, certain note, uh, certain quality. But, uh, let's turn our attention now to a, a different segment of the program where perhaps we don't always talk about things of certain prestiges, uh, certain noteworthiness, but they are celebrating milestones and we talk about them for that reason. Uh, that is, uh, of course, my way of saying it's now time for the blast from the past, the portion of the show where we fit things that are celebrating milestone anniversaries that uh, could be anything from a video game, TV show, movie, uh, perhaps a, a music album back when those were released uh, in physical formats. Uh, but we have two items this week. One is a movie. One is a television series, uh, both very much of their era. And that era is the 1990s. And uh, of the two, where would you like to start this week? Well, considering, well, one ended on the same day that the other came out, I think we can't go in terms of, you know, age, because, you know, arguably one's older. Well, it's not really arguable. One is older because it one's a TV series, one's a movie. The TV series debuted before the movie. I'm going to have more to say about the TV series because I've never actually seen the movie. <laughs> Um, or, well, if I did, it was fragmented and a long time ago. Um, because both of these things, you know, the movie came out and the TV series ended 25 years ago. So maybe we'll just, you know, talk about the movie briefly and then before getting into the TV show. So the movie, the movie uh, takes us back to uh, May 11th of 1996, which was a bygone era, but still the start of uh, what used to be the quote unquote summer blockbuster season when a whole lot of uh, big action movies would come out to movie theaters in the summertime and uh, try and make a whole bunch of bank at the box office. And so this movie that came out, uh, or as we have seen with summer blockbusters in the past, you know, 10 15 years, many of them revolve around superheroes. Uh, yeah. And that's, and they successively made more and more bank each time. Okay, fine. This movie had nothing to do with superheroes. It's from a different era before every, every big movie was Marvel or DC related. No, this, uh, had nothing to do with any sort of wild premise, uh, that you think might lend itself to a big budget summer blockbuster action movie. Uh, there's no aliens, there's no um, invading forces, it's not a big wartime movie, anything like that. It's not a period piece set in ancient Rome or, uh, with big epic battles or anything like that. This is a big summer blockbuster movie based around a tornado, and it's called Twister. Yeah, so the film, yeah, arguably, like, on paper, it looks like a fantastic movie otherwise, which is weird, given... Like the subject matter itself, when you just say it out loud, it's like, oh, it's, it's a film about storm chasers, um, trying to deploy a tornado research device during a severe outbreak in Oklahoma. Um, you're like, storm chasers chasing a tornado, basically just for research purposes. That sounds kind of boring. It, it sounds, it sounds like cat, a National Geographic movie. Yeah, almost. Or even a documentary. But, but 
it was written or at least co-written by Michael Crichton, who was basically coming off the high that was uh, Jurassic Park the year previous, either the year previous or a couple years previous. Anyways, um, and it was starring Helen Hunt, Bill Paxton, Jamie Gertz, and Carrie Elius, who, you know, time has kind of gone on to say that, yeah, they're all pretty bankable big stars. So, yeah. Not only that, it was being directed by uh, a man named Jan Debont, who just a couple years uh, prior to this movie coming out, directed the movie Speed. Yeah. Which itself the- was a big <laughs> summer blockbuster movie. Or the the bus that couldn't slow down. (laughs) (laughs) So this is, again, a movie based around a tornado or, well, storm chasers chasing tornadoes through Tornado Alley in the central plains of the United States, specifically Oklahoma, trying to deploy a research device. Helen Hunt plays a storm chaser uh, who meets back up with Bill Paxton, who was a former storm chaser, but he got out of that life and uh, became just a local weatherman on some kind of uh, local weather or local station, Channel 5, whatever, and gave up that life long before. And he gets sucked back into it, basically on the hunt for the next big one, as uh, he then meets or teams back up with Helen Hunt to chase down a big tornado and then launch the research device that uh, they hope will give them more predictive information to uh, help understand what uh, a forming tornado looks like and allow more time to alert residents of an area to get the hell out of the way because a tornado is coming. Because I guess in prime tornado season, they can spring up without much warning. Yeah. So, such is the plight of tor- tornado, tornado alley, hard to say in the United States. So, uh, that's the premise. Doesn't sound like much of a movie, but I've seen this several times. Uh, not in theater. I was too young to see it in theater, but my sister rented it several times from the video store back then, and I got to watching it. It's an enjoyable movie. I will say as someone who's watched it, it seems like a completely silly concept, and it is kind of silly, but it somehow works, and I don't know why. Yeah, that's that's generally kind of what I understand about the movie. Like, it... I did notice, I noticed also it's, it popped up on Netflix now. Maybe it was just added or maybe they're promoting it maybe because it's 25 years old now. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it could be on the list now, uh, as something I might watch in the near future. An interesting thing that I do remember about this movie though, this movie, the soundtrack from this movie had the last recorded song by the Sammy Hagar era Van Hillen lineup. And that song was Humans Being. I remember that song became a big hit, though, because, you know, that the music video had a lot of – back then, whenever they you know a band did a music or did a song for a movie or did a song that was very much tied in with a movie, like the music video for the big, you know, single off of the album or whatever or for the single itself for the soundtrack for the movie would f- feature – tons of footage from the movie and then, you know, the band would be basically injected into that type of footage themselves in some kind of, you know, ridiculous way. And, you know, the humans being video was no exception. Like other kind of examples I can think of of this would have been Van Halen or not Van Halen, sorry, uh, Aerosmith with, uh, uh, I think it was don't want to miss a thing from uh, Armageddon. Yes. And, uh, a few, like, I'm sure we can all think of those examples, right? Where the band does a music video 
and like, yeah, or like, uh, Peter, like the, the adventures of Peter Pumpkinhead for, by the crash test dummies, you know, with dumb and dumber as well. That's another one. It was sort of a thing at the time, but, um, yeah, very much a thing to have like a big rocking soundtrack, uh, to go along with this movie. And the soundtrack actually is pretty ridiculous for this tornado based summer blockbuster movie. Yeah. Like also like bringing the Van Halen thing back, um, while we did see the last recorded version of Van Hagar, as people call it, with humans being, we also saw Eddie and Alex Van Halen provide an instrumental track that sort of like helped bolster the rest of the orchestral film score by Mark Mancina called Respect the Wind. So I guess whenever they needed that, you know, little bit of instrumental music that rocked a little bit harder than the orchestra did, Eddie and Alex Van Halen provided that, which is cool and kind of a little bit different. Like just looking at the uh this the listing on the soundtrack here, Van Halen, Tori Amos, Alison Krauss, Mark Knopfler, Soul Asylum, Katie Lang, Lisa Loeb in Nine Stories, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Goo Goo Dolls, Shania Twain actually had a ridiculously big hit with her song from the soundtrack, No One Needs to Know. Yep. Uh, which is kind of uh, more a love ballad, and uh Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham with the song Twisted. Like, this is all on the soundtrack, and some of these songs also make it into the movie about a tornado. Yeah. Like, and it's not played up, and the movie doesn't play things up as uh, cheesy, campy, like a sharknado kind of thing. No, it's more like, hey, here's these people. They're chasing a tornado for science reasons. Oh, by the way, there's also this subplot of a rivalry between the the ragtag group of storm chasers headed by Helen Hunt with Bill Paxton, who comes back to the fold. Philip Seymour Hoffman, a, a younger Philip Seymour Hoffman, is in their in their group as well. Some other people in their bunch of storm chasers. They're trying to treat and chase down the, these tornadoes to launch their science equipment. Well, there's a rivalry they have with the other group of uh, more professional almost more sold out, more corporate, uh, you know, evil storm chasers who drive around <laughs> in all black trucks, basically wearing all black gear uh, and all black equipment, that team headed by Carrie Elius, who are also chasing down tornadoes in the same area at the same time to launch their science equipment so they can get the data and they can get the, the notoriety and prestige from it as well. Like, it's one of those rivalry aspects that very much seems like it's a sports movie. <laughs> think, and I'm going to use the example here of think along the lines of the first Mighty Ducks movie. Okay. When they're still the ragtag District 5, then become the Ducks going up against the Hawks. You know, the Hawks, the professional team who, you know, uh, they have, you know, good funding behind them. They take it all seriously uh, and this and that. And then you have the ragtag people who are still, you know, much looser, you know, they, they aren't the most professional looking. They don't have the best, finest equipment, but they're still there. And, but what they have is heart. That's also like another theme of a lot of movies back then were basically just that as well. Because, you know, like that wasn't the only thing I can think of. Like another movie I think of is like, you know, Little Giants is another one of those things. You know, Rick Moranis and Ed O'Neill, basically rival coaches of like – rival teams that were basically the same kind of thing. The one team had all these like more tough kids who were like, you know, the better football players Then all the nerdy kids and whatever, like all the leftovers basically get to be on Rick Moranis's team. And then same kind of idea or even like, uh, like there's tons of movies that did that back then as well. Like the, like the, yeah. 
Yeah. Like, or, or actually what I was going to say was Cool Runnings as well. Another real great example, even though it's a different movie entirely about a totally different thing. Still, they set up that rivalry between like the better funded, more suited, you know, to be their team, you know, the Switzerland team basically versus, you know, these ragtag group of Jamaicans who grew up in like, you know, super warm climate and basically have never seen ice before. <laughs> like, and you're rooting obviously for the Jamaicans, like the, like these guys, like, you know, they're going through crazy adversity. Like they've, <laughs> like it's going to be way harder for them to train to be a bobsled team. Like anyway. Yeah. So there's the injection of an underdog story and a rivalry story to this, uh, tornado-based big summer blockbuster, which, again, on the surface, you think, how the hell does this work? I don't know how it works, but it kind of does work, and it worked so well that Twister went on to become the second-highest-grossing movie in 1996, making just under $500 million at the box office. Now, that is nowhere near the first-place movie, the highest-grossing movie of 1996, which was Independence Day, the Will Smith, the alien mashup summer blockbuster. That, Independence Day, yes, you can see that being big summer blockbuster, making a shit-ton of money at the bank. Twister, not so much, but Twister was a huge hit, even going on to spawn a theme park attraction at Universal Studios. Orlando, for sure... I don't know if it was anywhere else, possibly Universal Studios Hollywood, but I did go and uh, partake of the Twister attraction at Universal Studios Orlando and thought it was one of the lamest things I've ever <laughs> experienced. So you would think a theme park attraction based on a tornado. Okay, well, maybe it's uh, maybe like a, a version of like the Gravitron, like something that just spins you all around or whatnot, or uh, maybe something like that. But you something where you can feel the force and the speed of the wind as the tornado kicks up. And w what the reality of the attraction was, was none of that. <laughs> Instead, you and however many people got shuffled into a soundstage type space and you stood along the back of the of the space while in front of you was a set piece of a house and props and uh like a almost made to look like a, a house in Oklahoma and then all of a sudden the storm starts to come and and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's effects and and then the tornado comes and then you know pieces start to fall off the house as the operator flicks the buttons and then like water starts to, you know, get sprayed and you feel a bit of spray behind you from the way things are rigged up. And, you know, the wind picks up and it's blowing in your face and whatnot. And then the thing lasts for a couple minutes and the storm dissipates. And, uh, and then you kind of look at the aftermath of the house in front of you. And then you're shuffled out the left side of the soundstage for the next, for everything to reset and the next group of people to come in. And it was one of the lamest goddamn things I recall experiencing there. Like, <laughs> I was there with my family and my sister were like, Oh, cool twister. And then we came out and just kind of looked at each other like, what the hell was that? <laughs> like you think theme park, you think roller coaster, you think maybe a big ejection tower. You think something that uh, is going to give you a full bodied, like visceral adrenaline inducing experience. And, like you can easily convey that when you're basing things around a tornado. And then twister was a sound stage. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Great. It, if that sounds lame, yes, I cannot uh, implore you enough or drive home the point enough. It was just how lame this goddamn thing was. 
I think in the uh, in the years since, uh, you know, it's long since been shut down, and I think that space got uh, taken over and replaced with a uh, Jimmy Fallon Tonight Show based attraction, where he's got a uh, runaway desk through the through the streets of New York City. So also maybe just replacing it with an equally lame sounding thing. Yeah, but at least there's a bit more motion and uh, activity to that. I think I don't know. I hope at least uh, you you have a bit more. As the the viewer participant in this attraction, you you at least get to experience more beyond just stand here and watch things. So, so yeah, Twister, just an oddity of a movie that seemed to do well from 1996, and it almost seems ripe for a uh, like a, a piece of long form writing on something like uh, the New Yorker or something exploring like why did Twister work as a movie. Like, and what went into it? What was the appeal for people? Uh, but it, it worked. There was a certain amount of heart. It wasn't as over the top as it could be. It wasn't as campy and cheesy as it could have been. It just, it seemed to strike a right balance for what it was trying to do back in 1996 as a tornado-based summer blockbuster. I'm going to drive that point home because it sounds insane, but it happened. It made a shit ton of money. <laughs> yep. But the other end of the spectrum that we're going to talk about now is a TV series that ended the same day that Twister came out back in 1996. Now, and it's a TV series that ran for several years prior to that point. It uh, had five seasons uh, over, I think, over 100 episodes or six seasons. Well, six, six, six seasons, 113 episodes. That uh, was very much from the 90s. As the, uh, as popular culture and mainstream society started to get quote unquote woke about the environment and the need to protect the environment, uh, kids were implored to do that through this. It was a cartoon called Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Yeah. So this might have been the, the show that beat you over the head the most with the whole environmentalist idea, but it's definitely not the only show of the time. And I think that's a very interesting thing to kind of like bring up here about this whole show and this whole time period, because there was a ton of environmental based shows. And I mean, the whole like thing of like, it's, it's very like to, to our group of people, if you say like, Oh, that person, what they're doing basically seems like, you know, like they're the bad guy in like one of those environmental car- cartoons from the early nineties. Everyone's going to know what you're talking about. Um, Cause at least for us, like in Canada, maybe it was just the Canadian thing that we got even more of them. But yeah, like when I think about it, like there was like the smoggies, there was also uh like the raccoons where, you know, Cyril Sneer was basically, you know, this like evil man, like, you know, pushing a button and deforesting a whole forest and somehow getting a ton of money for it kind of thing. Yeah, he was, uh, but, yeah. He was, he was a, a pink monster goblin version of Mr. Burns with, uh, who, yeah. who ran a de- ran like a lumber mill or deforestation factory instead of a nuclear power plant. Yeah, but like this, <laughs> with the large majority of these, you know, villains and stuff on these shows, basically, just essentially just being a group of people who hate earth <laughs> and they're just like, yeah, let's just toss a bunch of pollution into the you know planet and wreck the planet for some reason, as if they're not also living on the planet. Like at the very least, it's like, 
there's, it's not even just a matter of like a difference of like opinion on the science or anything. There's just like, at least in Captain Planet, the whole of like the, the rogues gallery, cause there was a, there was a rogues gallery, you know, like there was like recurring bad guys who, you know, would have been like the, the, you know, the, the baddie of the week kind of thing. Um, but it's like, their whole thing was literally like, let, yeah, let's just cause pollution. <laughs> so it's like, with no end goal of like, why are they doing this? Really? They're just eco villains for no reason, which is funny and ridiculous, but maybe, maybe, which is what makes this maybe the most ham fisted of all the shows. Cause it's like, like at least with the smoggies and stuff, they tried to, you know, make it seem like this is what makes them comfortable. And they maybe there's an aspect of them not realizing the impact of what they're doing is bad. So sure. And same thing with, you know, the raccoons with zero sneer. Yeah. He's, he's doing this, but it's to make money because, you know, he's a businessman. And of course this is his whole thing, but with captain planet, like the eco villains, you don't really know what their motivations are beyond their evil and that's it. <laughs> and and they are evil from the get out once you hear the name of these characters too. Yeah, like Hoggish Greedly, Venomous Scum, Duke Nukem, not the same one. Uh <laughs> Dr. Barbara Babs Blight. <laughs> I mean her name is Dr. Blight. <laughs> and then Loot and Plunder, Sly Sludge, Zarm. <laughs> And then, of course, because every, like, TV show back then also had to have, you know, the evil version of the superhero, Captain Planet also had his nemesis, Captain Pollution. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, because of course they did. And these were about as one-note and one-trick characters as you can imagine, as the names would suggest. Yeah, so Hoggish Greedly was like a pig-like human who basically represented overconsumption and greed, uh, venomous scum. Uh, interestingly enough, initially voiced by Jeff Goldblum and later on Maurice LaMarche, uh, he was like part human, part rat who represented like urban blight disease and drug abuse. Uh, Duke Nukem, voiced by Dean Stockwell and later, of course, Maurice LaMarche. Because Maurice LaMarche is just your go-to guy when you need anything, basically. Uh, he was a doctor who changed himself into a radioactive mutant who represented the misuse of nuclear power. Uh, Dr. Blight was Meg Ryan, believe it or not. Like, that's the other weird thing about this show. Like, tons of big names basically established a lot of these characters in the first season. Then I guess first, second season, and then you know, eventually they maybe became too expensive to keep going, and then they were just replaced with you know, um, very talented voice actors and actresses who could kind of replace the voices. Anyways, um, so Dr. Blight was, you know, a mad scientist who represented the dangers of uncontrolled technology and unethical scientific experimentation. Uh, loot and plunder was James Coburn and later Ed Gilbert, uh, who was basically, he was the wealthy poacher and crooked businessman who represented the evils of unethical business actions. Um, Sly Sludge, Martin Sheen, Lady <laughs> Jim Cummings, like the crazy voice cast. I'd like to point out for the first couple of seasons. Yeah, uh, 
Sly Sludge was the unscrupulous waste collector who represents laziness, ignorance, and the dangers of apathy and short-term thinking. Uh, and then Zarm, who was voiced by Sting, <laughs> and later David Warner, and then also later Malcolm McDowell, <laughs> which is insane. Anyways, uh, the former spirit of the planet who left Gaia in search of other worlds and ended up laying other populous planets to ruin, lacking Gaia to balance out his methods. So representing war and destruction. But yeah, like they're, they're the rogues gallery of just like people who are basically like the seven deadly sins for all intents and purposes. Uh, basically each one of them was balanced out by one of the planeteers. You know, like there was Gaia who was basically the spirit of the planet who yeah, initially voiced by also, Whippy Goldberg. And then also later, you know, notable character actress, Margot Kidder, <laughs> who I can't see her name without laughing because of you know, the effect that Bojack Horseman had. Um, anyways, um, yeah, and then all the planeteers themselves, who were basically like uh, Gaia, called upon them. Each gave each one of them uh, the control of a power of nature, um, with one of them also having the power of heart. But yes, Kwame. Voiced by LeVar Burton, hailing from Africa, possessing the power of Earth. Wheeler, voiced by uh, Joey DiDio from New York, controlling the power of fire. Linka, voiced by Kath Susi from the Soviet Union, and also in later episodes stated as being from Russia after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the communist regime's collapse and stuff, having the power of wind. Uh, Guy, voiced by Janice Kawai, hailing from Asia, uh, controlling the power of water and Mati voiced by Scott Menville from Brazil. No, Scott Menville is not from Brazil, but Mati was from Brazil wielding the power of heart. And then, you know, Suchi, who is Mati's pet monkey was voiced by Frank Welker, of course. <laughs> so yeah, very much like, uh, Oh yeah. And the other thing that was kind of fun about and ridiculous about this show that I kind of wish they still would do in a way, or maybe they do. I don't watch children's programming anymore, obviously, because I'm way too old, but, um, like every single show back then, there was always like, you know, the thing at the very end of the episode, after the episode wrapped up, they would always have, you know, like the lesson part where they would, you know, just basically be like, well, we learned a lot this episode. What did we learn? Let's just sum it up in two or three succinct sentences. And they, that was what they called, you know, the planeteer alert clip, which was, you know, environmental, political and other social political issues were, you know, discussed and how the viewer can contribute and be part of the solution rather than the pollution. <laughs> so very heavy handed, but I think very effective in, kind of creating what why a lot of us of our age range care about the planet and care about what happens to the environment and stuff uh certainly playing a uh, a pivotal part i mean we weren't uh, just getting that uh, message uh, imparted to us from captain planet although that was uh, a big part of it i mean we'd get it at school as well through uh, the teachings of uh, about the importance of recycling and uh, at the very least you know cut up the plastic rings from your six pack of uh, soda cans so sea turtles don't get caught in them or something and uh you know, shut the door, you know, reduce, recycle, reuse the three R's. We had that imparted to us as well. But, uh, yeah, having that message right, right, like literally punching you in the face 
repeatedly. Yes. Like, bloodying up your nose and telling you, protect the planet, proves to be effective. I mean, when done repeatedly enough. Uh, (laughs) But looking back, it was a ridiculous show, in no small part because it was co-conceived and co-created by Ted Turner, the billionaire. Yep. That's the other part about this that makes it crazy. The billionaire with his just pencil-thin Errol Flynn-style mustache who just was one time married to Jane Fonda, who was just a crazy billionaire tycoon who started CNN and the whole Turner Network Properties thing. Yeah, he he co-created Captain Planet and the Planeteers. But the thing I think people sometimes forget about Ted Turner is he's legitimately like, you know, for you know, for whatever you, you might disagree with, you know, the reasons why, but... He's very much into conservation as well and like a lot of environmental causes. Like arguably it's him individually that kind of brought Buffalo back from the brink of extinction, even though if they're not exactly what they were, but it's like largely in part because of him (laughs) doing so. So yeah, it's – uh it's very weird. I mean, and also I think whenever I think of Captain Planet, like you probably do as well, also think of that uh, robot chicken bit. <laughs> Where it portrays uh, Ted Turner himself dressing back up as Captain Planet and just going yeah. on a rampage. Yep. Basically kicking people in the groin, throwing them out of buildings and <laughs> stuff like that. So Captain Planet uh, – uh, Fairly successful run of, uh, uh, you know, teaching kids about the importance of the environment. Of course, being a popular cartoon at the time, it was spun off into many different directions, different properties, you know, toy line, obviously. Uh, and also, I'm going to use this uh, moment to point out one of the worst possible NES games ever is the Captain <laughs> Planet game. Yep, very much so. Terrible game. Just trash. I have never before experienced an NES game where you cannot get more than 10 seconds into a level without dying. Yeah. Like, and and there's like five or six different levels. They're all the basic concepts of like, here's the fire world, here's the ice world, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I think, I think in most of them, you're either playing as Captain Planet himself, or you're the kids in the jet, the big yellow flying jet. That was solar powered, but either way, they're all flight based levels and you have to navigate obstacles as you go around, but one hit and you're dead is the premise behind the the gameplay here. And also, uh, completely terrible, uh, level design in every level. (laughs) It doesn't matter what you do. If you, if you action one of the uh, the kids special abilities whatever the you can't do anything or go anywhere in the game so i wasted ten dollars buying that game but at least i have a story to tell about it yes exactly so if you don't believe me look it up on youtube or whatnot uh it's it's a terrible game don't, don't ever play it if you're uh, if you're in a position to make that choice. Just don't. It's not worth it. But at least go back and check out YouTube and watch some of the old Captain Planet clips. See how they hold up. I'm going to go ahead and say probably not well. Yeah, I, I don't think well is uh, in the vocabulary of what you'd want to use for that. I mean, they are clips that exist and we must acknowledge them as such. But uh, yeah, it's uh, very much uh, a program from a bygone and 
entirely different era in in kids entertainment. Yeah. Not just the kids entertainment, but kids edutainment too. A show that actively tried to uh, to teach you about things and be fun while doing so. Combination that rarely, if ever, works. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So uh, let us know your thoughts. Do you remember watching Twister? Do you remember enjoying Twister? Did you also partake in the Twister theme park attraction at one of the Universal Studios locations? Is it as lame as you remember? Do you, Is Captain Planet... In perhaps a recent re, recent rewatching, as lame as you remember, let us know your thoughts on all of that, as well as anything else you heard on this episode of the arcade. You can email us info at thearcadeshow.com or hit us up through social media. Like us, follow us, uh, send us a message. We are on Twitter and on Facebook at the arcade show. Uh, and if you haven't done so already, subscribe to our program, get it delivered to your digital doorstep. We are on Google Podcasts and on iTunes. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. And I say that and implore you to subscribe if you haven't done so already, with a bit of irony knowing full well, as I'm going to tell you, tell you that we will be away for next week, as Dennis and I have already looked ahead in the calendar and can see that we have schedule conflicts for next week to uh, record any sort of program. Uh, Dennis has affairs in his own life. Den- I, I have affairs in my own life that uh, will take us away from recording time, but uh, our plan is to uh, get back together in a couple of weeks' time and uh, pop out a new show for your audio enjoyment. Sound good? I think that sounds good. Yeah, I think that sounds good, too. All right, so uh, until we are all joined together again, good night, everybody. Good night. (laughs) 